You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously. It doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. Elliot, before we start the podcast today, officially want to congratulate the Toronto Six of the PHF winners of the Isabel Cup. For the first time, that trophy is going north. Teresa Venisova with the is the overtime hero. The answer to the trivia question: Who scored the winning goal for the Toronto Six to win their first championship? What did you think of three on three overtime? I like it to begin with. Whenever I bring that up, I get treated horribly online, but <laughs> I do like it. I do. I I would like it for the NHL. I'm glad the PHF did it. I know this is I know this is heresy, and here come the angry tweets. But I like it. I have to say, generally, I hate it too, but I didn't mind it here. It's not easy for me to say that because I never want to see it in the Stanley Cup final game. Never. I want the Stanley Cup to be decided at five on five and overtime if that's the way it goes. I did have to say I'm with you. I didn't hate it. Like, who are all the people that uh, you know very well that you want to congratulate here for the championship victory? I mean, there's a few. Like, you've heard me talk about Soraya Tinker before. I think she's going to be a star at whatever she decides to do whenever her career is is wrapped up. Not that I'm trying to wrap it up because she's got a lot of hockey still to play. I mean, Brittany Howard lit the league up this year. Um, that was a major coup for the uh, for the PHF. Uh, Lindsay Eastwood, I've always been a big fan as well. And Alexis Wallacechuk from Winnipeg, congratulations. Listen, some real strong, powerful names in women's hockey as well. And that begins with Angela James. That begins with Sammy Joe Small. That begins with Geraldine Heaney. So some some big names, some uh, accomplished athletes from the past and the present right now. Congratulations to everybody involved with the Toronto Six. It's your Monday edition of 32 Thoughts, the podcast presented by GMC and the Sierra AT4X, Friedman, Merrick, and Delich as always. Plenty to get to here in a couple of moments, Elliot. We'll talk about the Devils clinching. Congrats. Uh, Yevgeny Kuznetsov saying, trade me right now. And some really interesting emails and phone calls as well. We'll get to all these things over the course of however long this podcast takes. But... We'll start with the Maple Leafs, and we should probably start by talking about Sheldon Keefe, the head coach, who hasn't been shy, well, maybe a little bit shy when approaching the Matt Murray um, conversation, but not shy after Saturday's game vis-a-vis William Nylander. And as in Toronto, a tiny thing is a huge thing, so we should probably talk about a couple of Globe and Mail articles over the weekend. But your thoughts right now, snapshot, big and small picture, Toronto Maple Leafs. I think it's been an interesting week. They've generally played pretty well on the deserve to win o meter, Jeff. Ye old deserve to win a meter. Mm-hmm. They probably deserve to win against Carolina on Saturday night. I thought they were the the better team 
uh, most of the night. Uh, they lost the game. That happens sometimes. Uh, you know my Matthews theory that, yes, he was hurt, but I think he's also been tapering himself for the playoffs this year. He has his 60-goal season. He knows in the grand scheme of things, while it's a great accomplishment, it doesn't mean much in the overall picture unless the Leafs start winning in the playoffs. So I think he's getting going and getting on at the right time. Keith has been interesting to me this week. He was critical of Nylander. Yes, more. I just find, and he and I have talked about this, I just find when the puck's hitting his stick, his, his feet aren't moving to the same degree. He's not attacking. Uh, there's a lot more perimeter, a lot more just sort of getting rid of the puck. You know, I want him to hang on to it. I want him to challenge. I want him to be on the attack. I want to see lots of pace from him. That's when he's at his best. Uh, so that's really it. Just get back to doing that. It's been, uh, it's been too long now since we've seen that consistently from him. But, and Nylander actually did make a poor play. Uh, initially, people were wondering about what the defensemen were doing, but Nylander was the one who made a poor play, and they end up losing the game. And then after the game, Keefe was, it wasn't bad, but he did make the point about Murray that... It's difficult to win with any sort of regularity if you have to score more than four. So Matt's got to find a way to keep one or two of those out. That's just the bottom line. And I don't mind a coach being blunt. You know, hey, we always say we want people to be more entertaining and speak more honestly in hockey. We can't criticize them when they do. I think it just says to me that Keefe, he's starting to put his thumb down on this group, that now is the time to play the way you want to play in the playoffs. And we have to be like that right now. Like watching Tampa and Boston on Saturday, the way John Cooper started Pat Maroon against the Bruins, that was a tone setter. You know, we were talking about this actually as a group last night after the show and it's how Cooper talks about the lightning needs swagger and there has to be a certain swagger with that team well they're reeling a bit right now and Cooper puts out Maroon at the beginning of the game to get that swagger back in Boston and as I see two coaches right now looking at a collision course Mm -hmm. Toronto Tampa in the first round of the playoffs and they are saying against this other team We cannot give them goals. And from here on in, we have to be in that mindset for when the playoffs start in the third week of April. And I just think that's what Cooper's doing, Mm -hmm. and I think that's what Keith's doing. Some interesting comments from Brendan Shanahan this weekend. And you talk about, what was it, the win-o-meter or deserve-to-win-o-meter? Yes. How about the tinfoil hat? meter around Toronto, which a lot of people like to wear at various times. How much were the Brendan Shanahan comments over the weekend a protein shake for the tinfoil hat wearing fans, not all of them, some of them, around the Toronto Maple Leafs? I think the Versace tinfoil hats were coming out. (laughs) Very stylish. Fresh off the runways of Bay Street, the Versace tinfoil hats. Yeah, these were not the homemade tinfoil hats. These were like the Gucci... Versace <laughs> tinfoil hats. You know, the ones that cost you about $8,000 or maybe you can get them for like $1,500, $2,000 in the refurbished stores. Yes. They very much do make your skull look lean. So it's a real accoutrement yes. in, the, in the spring. Anyhow. 
It makes my head look less fat. Yes, absolutely. So, <laughs> like, these were definitely out on Saturday. Um, so the Globe and Mail had a, had a couple of columns. Both of them were by Cahal Kelly. One of them uh, was a, was an interview with Brendan Shanahan, as you said, and it was it was a nice, light, breezy read. I, I I enjoyed reading it, and I have to tell you, I didn't think about this, but a friend of mine did. The other article was a column by Cahal Kelly, where he talks about how the Boston Bruins play with a renewed energy this year, the same core. Yeah. Although Krejci's back, but generally the same core has a renewed energy this year playing under Jim Montgomery. And I just have to tell you, there were some people who looked at those two articles next to each other and they were like, this is a sign. You know, I I said, okay, thank you for putting it on my radar. And I read the two articles and look, I just am mentioning this, that you watch that Keefe is putting the thumb down on his guys and again, I don't have any problem with that. You have to be disciplined heading into the playoffs. But I'm just saying that I know some people that the tinfoil hats, they were they were being worn on Sunday after this <laughs> came out. Yeah, that's an intriguing one. I was talking about this theory with one person. Okay. And he said to me, you're insane. And you may, <laughs> you may be talking about people with... Other people with tinfoil hats, but you've that's got good. the biggest tinfoil hat of all for bringing this one up. That's what, that's what he said to me. I said, look, like I'm just the messenger. Don't yell at me. He goes, no, you're nuts. That's what he told me. I don't know that I, like, I understand why people think that every comment from anybody in the Toronto Maple Leafs organization is essentially the equivalent of a subtweet. I just don't know that I'm ready to make that jump in this situation. I still think there's a lot of hockey and a lot of decisions before the Maple Leafs organization gets to that decision, if, uh, if if you know what I mean. And I don't necessarily think that that's a, I don't know, a chumming of the waters for what is to come on the horizon for the Maple Leafs. But as anything, conspiracy theories are fun for things like talk radio and podcasts. So there you go. You mentioned that Boston-Tampa game a second ago. And I had a friend of mine that went to the game and he sent me a text afterwards and he essentially said, Tampa is trending into playoff mode. And that was actually a real good playoff style game because both teams were finishing checks. Like you saw that game yesterday afternoon, Elliot. Every hit was for keeps. Great game. That looked and felt like a playoff game. And the one point that he went out of his way to mention was it was the Bruins' fourth line that had to win that one. And how much do we talk in the playoffs about, you know, sometimes in the playoffs, you know, each team's top six sort of neutralizes one another and it's up to the bottom six, the third line, or in this case, yesterday with the Boston Bruins, the fourth line, those are the lines that become the difference makers. And there it was yesterday for the Boston Bruins. It was a fourth line that had to win it for him. Did that one feel like playoffs to you? Absolutely it did. What a great game. Now, in the playoffs, I don't know that you'll get that kind of message sending where Maroon starts a game like that. Yeah, this is Hathaway and Patrick Maroon exchanging niceties and getting a talking to by Kyle Murchison, the linesman, and Chris Rooney, the referee. 
And Maroon lined up on that right wing, which is where he will play, but not for this opening face-off. Maybe early in the series you might. Do you think so? How often do we see that in the playoffs? We see that in the first round. But you still get a tough, mean game. A pair of fights right off the bat. And a third. Carnet Hathaway and Patrick Maroon. Maroon going over and under. Hathaway. Oh, he hit him with the right. Maroon jabbing and hooking, going to the ribs. You get a tough, mean game. I just... No, no, no. I'm talking about Maroon starting the game like that. Yes, you get a tough, mean game. I, that's why I love the playoffs. The playoffs are tough and they're mean. But you rarely see the game start like that. If Boston and Tampa meet in the playoffs, would it surprise you if you saw the exact same thing on game one? Maybe in game one. Put it this way, Jeff, I wouldn't hate it. <laughs> no, but I'm like, to, to your point, like I don't know that I see that in game seven or a game six or any type of closeout game. But in a game one, I don't know. I I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I've got no problem with it. Put it this way, I wasn't changing the channel when that happened yesterday. No, I know. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it was it, it was a great game. I thought the interesting thing was, I think initially Hathaway just wanted to play. He, he didn't want to fight. He wanted to play the game. But Maroon made it very clear, you're either dropping the gloves or you're getting pounded. So, you know, Hathaway eventually he had to fight. I mean, I loved it. I, I loved the game. I thought it was a great game. I thought it's the way hockey is supposed to be played, skilled and tough and mean. And I think it says a lot about where John Cooper thinks the Lightning are right now, that they just aren't where they need to be, and I've got a light of fire mm -hmm. underneath them. Think about all the people this year who've talked about Tampa and Toronto. Like when we interviewed Ryan McDonough, he talked about how they thought they were in trouble. Yeah, A lot of people have talked about how much Toronto has improved. Remember Jake Allen talking about how difficult Toronto is to defend. It's almost like against a positionless basketball team on offense. Mm -hmm. I thought if Toronto was ever going to beat Tampa, it was going to be last year, and they had them on the ropes, and Tampa was like Muhammad Ali coming off the ropes in the, in the 10th round. And they lost. You know, that's the heart of a champion. They had them beat, and they lost. And I think this year, you know, we've, we've started talking about this again. There's a lot of people I know in my circle of trust mm. who think that Tampa's washed and Toronto's going to pound them. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, do you guys ever learn with this stuff? But I do think the Lightning are worried this year, probably more than they've ever been to play Toronto in the playoffs because of the way Toronto's going coming in and the way they're going coming in. But again, when game one puck drops, the lightning are going to be wired, and they're going to come out of that series with their best right away. And I'm really curious to see how it goes, because I thought Toronto was good enough to beat them last year, but they blew it, and I think they're good enough to beat them this year. And as you know, I never bet against the Lightning. Never, ever, ever. It is the fool that bets against the Tampa Bay Lightning. One more, um, one more thought on on Hathaway because I thought about this is one of the things that I thought about on on way to work on Saturday after watching uh, Tampa and Boston. The one thing I kept coming back to is 
This is Tampa on the road and Boston at home. If it's reversed and Maroon is going after Hathaway uh, you know, on the opening face-off and, and chasing him around to, to get at him, does Hathaway engage? Or is this a message by John Cooper saying, we can drag you into this type of game. We know we can do this in Boston. But you know the dynamic. You're at home. It's your home crowd. You don't want to feel embarrassed. You got Pat Maroon chasing you in a, in a in a scrum here. Do you think there's anything to that, Elliot, that at the end of it, Hathaway's at home and there's almost, I don't want to say obligation, but it kind of feels that way to do it with Pat Maroon? I think there's some of that, Jeff. But again, I just think at the end of the day, Maroon made it very clear, you're going or you're getting pounded, not fighting. Yeah. So you just get into a spot where you, you would basically say, you know what? I have to drop the gloves because this guy's going to punch me anyway. Okay, um, Winnipeg Jets. Uh, tough loss Saturday against the Los Angeles Kings. 4-1 to is the final. Uh, I want to get to Lazat and Morrissey here in a couple of seconds, but you talked about this Saturday on Hockey Night. Man, that is a really difficult loss for Winnipeg. But your thoughts on the future of the Winnipeg Jets core? I saw tweets about Rick Bonus's quotes uh, after the game, and then we showed them uh, at the end of the show. And oftentimes, I think when you read something and you see something, they can come across two different ways. Jeff? Yeah. Honestly, when I read them, I said, wow, that's pretty harsh. Uh, but when I saw them, I was like, nah, you know what? He's delivering it really calmly, very matter-of-factly about losing to the Kings. The top guys, yeah, well, they've got to score. <laughs> you know, uh, we, need, we need some goals from them, and yeah. Is that just That's a, the stating the obvious. Yeah. So. Is that just a case of other teams that are doing a good job of maybe... Fight through it. Fight through it. Whatever they throw at you, fight through it. You know, look, like we talked about Keith and his frustration with the Maple Leafs. Bonus has been pretty clear about his frustration with the Jets. And I, and I should mention, it was Scott Billick he had the exchange with last week about motivation. It wasn't Sean Reynolds. I misread Sean's tweet. I would like to blame Sean Reynolds for this mistake because, <laughs> you know, that's what I do. I, I voice blame on other people, but it wasn't yeah. Sean's fault. I, I misread his text. Fingers are for pointing. <laughs> yeah, fingers are for pointing. That's right. Very good, Jeff. Thank you. But... Do you not just get the sense here that the that Jets core that had a good run together and had a lot of promise were just getting to the end of it? And part of it is contracts. Like Dubois has got a year left, and we all know how he feels. Wheeler's got a year left. Yeah. Uh, Shifley's got a year left. Like sometimes it's a combination of the group had a run and they represented the Jets extremely well, but. You know, sometimes it just comes to the end because of your record. Sometimes it comes to the end because of the contracts. Paul Maurice, uh, he really protected that group. And not so much Dubois because Dubois came later, but, you know, Wheeler Shifley, he basically said, these are the guys I trust. These are the guys I, I like the tone they set. I love how committed they are to doing the work. Like, they're my guys. And with bonus, it certainly doesn't come across that way. And that's one of the reasons that bonus was brought in was to change, you know, the way that the structure was and, and challenge players a little bit more. And I just look at this and the way this year is going and, you know, you and I have talked about it. They, they keep pulling away and then they let everybody back in. They pull away and they let everybody back in. Well, now they've kind of let everybody back in again. And 
I just wonder if we're we're seeing the end of this group. Um, you know, I think the Jets have talked to the Canadians on and off about Dubois. There's some way we know that Dubois is going to end up there. Ninety five percent. Is there some way we make a deal so the Canadians get him earlier and we get something we want? I think they've talked about that, but they haven't been able to make the deal. Mm-hmm. With Shifley, you've got to basically decide: Are you resigning him, or is he resigning, or do you move him somewhere else? I. Like I said, those guys represented Winnipeg hard. They talked up Winnipeg when, you know, a lot of people were unsure. Do we really want to go there? We've talked about how Shevel Dayoff has a tougher job than a lot of other GMs because there's no place that has less of a pool of players available to it than the Jets do. I'm looking at this and I'm saying, boy, this this could be the end of an era with the Jets. Yes, and then I think part of the conversation revolves around when was the beginning of the end and this is going to take a lot more thinking from me but my knee jerk is it began when dustin bufflin left and then it was marching towards this eventually like all teams like the the core of every team sort of marches to its own demise at a certain point i just think the beginning of the end was losing dustin bufflin i agree with that and now here we are and we're at the point where you do have to start to make the decisions and try to get something to build this team back up because as we have talked about, it's challenging to populate a roster with elite level players uh, if you're Kevin Shevel Day off. You know, I got to tell you something, Jeff. Like, yeah. I agree with you on that. Buffalo seems to me the kind of guy that, you know, there's always, when you go to work and it's really serious all the time, you know, Buffalo seems to me the kind of guy, he doesn't do everything the way that everybody else does it. But he gets there and it's hilarious. Yeah. And we've had a lot of people, like just in our own example, we've had a lot of people that we've worked with that have made it really fun to come to work. I think, I, I mean, how many times do we sit in the green room and laugh with Doug McLean or with Brian Burke or whomever? Like you need that, I think, in every workplace. Like I know it's your job and your obligation to to go to work. You're being paid and that's the uh, the agreement but there are just some people that make it fun to go to work. And I think that's really valuable. Like I've never been a big, oh, good guy in the room, good guy in the room. Well, yeah, they don't flood the room though. I've never really been a a big good guy in the room, but I do see the value in having people around that make it fun to come to work and make you enjoy yourself. And I think that's good for everybody. And And he played hard. Like he didn't goof around on the ice. Oh man, did he ever play hard. And he was so unique. Like honestly, I really hope that history is kind to Dustin Bufflin. I know I will be, and I'll continue to mention his name for, you know, as long as I share oxygen with everybody else. I think that guy was so valuable for Winnipeg. And I think the minute that he left the Winnipeg Jets, it very much, and you look back now, it looks like that was the beginning of the end for this group of Winnipeg Jets players. Some highlights, some lowlights along the way, but that was really the beginning of the end. Consistent with the most recent cross-check to the face, uh, Blake Lazat, one game suspension for the cross-check to Josh Morrissey. It's kind of uh, amazing how we had like none of these all year, Jeff, and all of a sudden we've had two. My theory on this is that it's just we're getting close to the playoffs and everybody's tempers are short. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody was surprised with the length of the uh, suspension because that's what Greer got and um, a suspension that Mike Hoffman clearly didn't agree with. And no. somebody asked me, what's your opinion on Hoffman? And I said, you know what? If that's his opinion, that's his opinion. I've got no problem with that. We can't be sitting here and having people 
say, oh, hockey players have no personality and don't say anything. And then when they do say something, we all rip them. So if that's Hoffman's opinion, that's Hoffman's opinion. I'm fine with it. So I've gotten a two-game suspension for cross-checking a guy in the back of the helmet. A full-blown intentional cross-check to the face. One game. Hmm. Like that one with the, with Hoffman and Greer, I actually thought the Lazat one was a little bit worse because Morrissey like basically says, do you want to fight? When a guy turns around and skates right at you, um, I think he's looking to engage. And I said, let's go and, you know, drop my gloves. And he got his stick up. I, I don't think he's skating around out there trying to crush that guy's in the face, but it happened. And... For me, uh, Hoffman takes a shot at Greer, which, you know, wasn't that bad. But then Greer comes back and chops him and gets the suspension. I thought in Lazat's case, Morrissey's like, do you want to fight me? And instead of dropping his gloves, Lazat cross-checks him in the face. Like, to me, that's mm -hmm. actually worse because Morrissey's saying, do you want to fight fair? And he gets a shot in the face. But I'm not surprised that this happens at this time of year. You know, like I said, Jeff, we haven't seen it all season. And now where are we going here? Greer wants to play for the Bruins in the playoffs. They've got a loaded roster. He's wired to keep his spot. He's had a really good year this year, and he makes a bad decision, and he takes the suspension. Lazat's another guy. He's carved out a good role for the Kings. He's got 30 points. He's wired to play and show he can play the hard games, and he makes a really bad decision. And I think that plays into what happens this year. I thought both players deserve their suspensions. It's just a reminder, you got to play hard, but you can't be undisciplined. I don't know how you feel, but to me, it's all about time of year. We haven't seen these kind of cross-checks all season, and now we're seeing them 10 games before the playoffs. Yeah, and you know what? The one thing that we've seen from the Department of Player Safety so far this season, well, not so much from them, but it's been a real down year for suspensions. Like it has been compared to last season where I think it was 33 or 34 suspensions. I think we've only had about 16, maybe 17 suspensions this season. So suspensions are down, um, but this week is trying to catch the NHL up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, you guys have been sitting around doing nothing. We want to give you some work. Hey, George, get back to work. I have to say this. like There haven't been a ton of plays either that I really... like. The biggest debated one was probably the one Watson on Mott. I think there, and there were some people who really wanted a suspension there, but other than that, Jeff, have there been too many this year where you looked and said they really missed on something? No, there's been, there's, there's been nothing. It's been one of those years where, and I understand that later on in the season, more players walk the line. And when you walk the line, there's a greater chance you're going to walk over. Especially depth guys, I think, or non-established guys. Totally. But this has been a season where it's very seldom has anyone crossed over the line. I know what you're saying about, uh, about Watson and Mott. I didn't think it was a suspension. I know people disagree with me on that one, but I didn't think that that one rose to the level of suspension. But listen, I, I got to be honest. It's been players walking the line, but not crossing over. I mean, you're always going to get suspensions. That's baked in the pie for the NHL, but it's been a pretty tame year so far. Now, one thing I want to let you know, I love two kinds of people in the NHL. Okay. I love cranky hockey players, mm -hmm. and I really got a soft spot in my heart for angry coaches, Elliot, <laughs> to which I present Rod Brindamore. 
Welcome back inside PNC Arena, now joined by head coach Rod Brindamore. Rod, Chatfield finds Drury in the middle to score and tie that at one. How would you like to see your group utilize puck management to create some chances in the Ozone here? I don't know. I'm just disgusted. I don't even want to talk about it. I can't. I'm tired of watching this, these calls. It's a knick-knack call, and it's just, you're just handing them goals. It's not a fair fight when we have to do this, so I don't want to talk about it. So just to set the situation, it's a 1-1 game. Uh, there'd been three penalties in the first period, and uh, Jack Edwards strongly disagreed with uh, one of the situations, which went completely viral. <laughs> and first of all, once again, the Hurricanes look dynamite in those Whalers uniforms. Like, it's just a great thing that they do. What do I keep saying? More green in the NHL, the most underrepresented color, most underrepresented color. Well, broccoli and asparagus, it's good for your diet, Jeff. So, <laughs> yes, I, I, I do think green is important. Like PSA there, Bernie. <laughs> but uh, so there, there's three penalties in the first period. The last one at 17-11. There's none in the second until Tara Vinan gets one at 8-52. And Pasternak scores his second of the night, his 51st on, of the year on the ensuing power play, and it's 2-1. to one. And kudos to the Hurricane sideline reporter, Hannah Yates, I mean, she gets right in there with the question. Yeah. And someone texts me and says, you have got to hear this interview. And a buddy of mine is a doctor, and he's like, he saw it, and he said, you know, where does Brindamore get his blood pressure medication? Because I'd like to be his supplier. Like, that would be a constant source of revenue for me, is what my buddy says. <laughs> it does not take Brindamore... Uh, long to get wired at the officiating. It's not a hard thing for him. And and I will say this, I think one of the reasons he was as angry as he was, so Saturday night they played at home against Toronto. Austin Matthews' second goal, which tied the game at 3-3 with about three minutes to go in regulation. Attacker on here, yet and up, with the rolling puck in front of the goal. They score! Oh. No, they're going to say that it was, or yes, it is! It was reviewed. No. And I had a couple of officials say to me they didn't think it should count because the whistle goes. Now, if the play is in motion and the puck goes directly in, it can count. Like, that's a legitimate call. That, you know, for example, if the net gets knocked off or something like that and the puck was going to go in, you can rule that a goal. But I had a couple referees who said to me that they didn't think Matthews was in the act of shooting or had received the puck yet when the official when the referee blew the whistle. And they were also a bit surprised because I guess there was a directive after that weird Ottawa-Colorado goal. Like, you remember that weird one with Sogard a couple weeks ago? Icing is waved off. It goes in on Sogard, and so he'll cover up. No, there's no whistle. Puck is in the net. Oh, my goodness. What in the world just happened? Everybody in the building, including yours truly, thought that either A, it would have been icing, or two, the puck was covered up. I don't think either of those things happened, and it's Lars Eller, come Eller high water, who stuffs it in for his first goal as a member of the Colorado Avalanche. This is fascinating. Now, Brady Kachuk is over talking to Frederick Lequier. There was a miscommunication, it appeared, between the linesmen on whether that was icing or not, they decided it wasn't icing. Sogard made the mistake on the icing. The linesman waves the icing dead, and Sogard didn't see it. But he had his hand over the puck, right? But he just he just he just assumed that the play was yes. dead. But there was no whistle. 
but I think something went out saying, you know, you know, we do have to, if the goalie freezes it, unless you openly go out there and tell him to move the puck, you got to be a bit quicker. Some of the officials told me something came out on that. But anyway, Kachekov has his hand over the puck. The whistle goes. I guess Matthews didn't have it yet, and then it gets shot in. And they thought on that one the Hurricanes had a case because either it should have been blown dead or when the whistle goes, Matthews hadn't gotten the puck yet. Anyway, so Brindamore's probably wired about that one on Saturday to begin with, and then he has the interview on Sunday, which <laughs> I have to tell you a few people found hilarious. I guess every year there's one coach that they say is harder on the referees than anybody else, and we know Brindamore's been fine before, and I guess he's that guy. Like we talked about, the players are getting wired up and, and intensifying before the playoffs. I guess the coaches are too. Well, you know, I'm I'm still convinced that the only reason some people take coaching positions is just to test how high they can get their blood pressure. I'm I'm convinced that that's a kind of a sidebar to all of this. Although, you know what? You really have to give it to the Boston Bruins this weekend. They beat Tampa. We talked about that game earlier. They beat Tampa on Saturday afternoon in a playoff-style game. And then Sunday, they face off against Carolina, another Stanley Cup contender, uh, no Bergeron, no Brad Marchand, no Hampus Lindholm. Yep. It's a back-to-back scenario, and they come out the winners 4-3 to three in the shootout. And you, as you mentioned, Pasternak with a pair of goals, 50-51, and 51, his first 50-goal campaign. That's an impressive weekend for the Boston Bruins, man. It's a really good weekend. I like a lot of these teams in the East. I mean, to me, the Bruins are built as perfectly as I think you can build a team during the salary cap era including what they added at the deadline. But like I see a lot of good teams there. I think Toronto's a good team. You know how I feel about Tampa. Like I think all those those five teams that are in the locked in playoff spots right now, Carolina, Jersey, Rangers, I think they're all really good teams. And I don't think anybody would be surprised if the Bruins came out of the East, but that gauntlet for whoever gets out of there is going to be incredible. There are some great teams there. Are you going to predict it now? No sweeps? Like in any round? In the East, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's a great prediction, Jeff. Yes, I am prepared to do that. And I hope if I'm wrong that this part of the podcast goes into <laughs> podcast air and nobody remembers it. Listen to the 32 Thoughts podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously, it doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences, People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host.
So, Elliot, some college free agent signings we should probably go over. Um, the big one, and by big one I mean we've had a lot of questions and we've wondered a lot about it. Uh, the Calgary Flames signing Matt Coronado. We we're going to get there. First round draft pick. Montreal uh, also signing someone from Harvard, Sean Farrell, uh, signs with the Habs. Uh, Alex LaFerriere, another Harvard prospect, mm -hmm. uh, signs. He's a third-round draft pick. He signs with the Los Angeles Kings. And Max Sasson, uh, the Western Michigan Mustang, signs with the Vancouver Canucks. So a, a busy day signing college free agents on Sunday. And we should also mention, just so you know, Jeff, Akito Hirose, yes. who is a Calgary-born player and finished this year Vancouver at Minnesota as well yeah Minnesota State U Mankato it's not been made official but a lot of people think he's going to Vancouver and he could join the Canucks as early as this week he's someone the Canucks were all over and it looks like they're going to get him although nothing is done until it's done all of those are big acquisitions but I agree with you the big name is Coronado and the thing that's interesting about him is that when the Flames drafted Coronado, it's pretty well known. They had conversations with him before they took him. They said, we really like you, but we don't want to take you if we're going to lose you. I mean, everybody knows the Adam Fox story. The Flames made a great pick there in, in a middle round. Yeah. Some people really don't like that Adam Fox did that, that he could you know, manipulate the system to do it that way and end up with New York. Like to me, that's a non-issue. It's not manipulating, though. I, I I don't I don't like that. It's not manip he, he didn't do anything wrong. A hundred percent. I'm glad you said it. I'm totally with you. It's not manipulating the system when that avenue is available to you yeah. in a collectively bargained agreement. I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you. That's the way it works, and he used the system. I'm with you. I have no problem with it. But anyway, the the Flames just made it very clear they didn't want to take Coronado if. He didn't want to play there, and Coronado said it was not going to be an issue, and a couple of years later, uh, he keeps true to that. Now, I will say this. I think there was, I don't know if there was worry in the organization, but I definitely got the sense there was worry in the fan base that, you know, because young players have had a very difficult time getting in that lineup, that maybe Coronado would see what was going on and not want to be there. And, you know, I'll say this. If it had dragged on into the week or a bit longer, I would have felt that those concerns might have been justified, but they lost Friday and he signed Sunday. So obviously Coronado was in a place where he was either confident or it was explained to him that he was going to play. Mm. So, you know, that's that. And that's a big win for the Flames. And a tough year getting that done and uh, we don't have to worry about that. That's very, very good for them. And, you know, as for Farrell and LaFerriere, Montreal's very happy to have one. The Kings are very happy to have the other. You know, LaFerriere for us probably gets less attention because he's not attached to a Canadian team. But, uh, you know, I had a couple people tell me that they wouldn't be surprised if he scored a big goal for the Kings sometime this year. So everything around the Pittsburgh Penguins worked out. So the Buffalo Sabres, Eric Comrie, congratulations. Shout out after surrendering a million goals. Did you see that stat, by the way? Great stat, wasn't it? Yes. Surrender 10 and then come back with a shutout. Good on Eric Comrie. First guy in 60 yeah. years, Don Simmons of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite a stat. So the Sabres beat the Islanders 2-0. Also, the Florida Panthers lose to the New York Rangers by a final score of 4-3. to So everything, although, you know, Barkoff with a pair in that one, that's nice. Everything around Pittsburgh lined up for them to win. And it looked good early. They go up 3 nothing, And then much like the Pittsburgh Penguins that we're sort of used to this year, Elliot, 
They surrender that lead and the Washington Capitals tie it up. And then a gorgeous, a gorgeous play by Malkin, uh, horrible turnover by Anthony Mantha. Malkin goes in 120 left on a gorgeous shot. Oh, yeah. It is the absolute perfect shots tucked right beside the right post. Uh, just a beautiful shot. Exits his own end. Stripped of the puck by Malkin. He's gone. On the forehand. Shoots. Scores! Dino Machino turns the tables and the Penguins go back up 4-3 with a minute 20 to go. And the Pittsburgh Penguins uh, win the game 4-3. They lead the Panthers now by three points for the final wildcard spot and are only a scant one point behind the Islanders for the first wildcard spot. And of note, Tristan Jari, although he didn't play, he backed up Casey DeSmith in this one. Saturday, huge for Crosby and company, Elliot. It was a massive game, and, and I agree with you. I think uh, for a lot of reasons. I, I you know, DeSmith gave them a win. Jari dressed as the backup, but he, I mean, if you're the Penguins now, you know that this is touch and go. You're hoping for the best, but you're preparing for the worst with Jari. That's just kind of where you are at this point in time, unfortunately, with his health. Obviously, they believe in him a big deal as a goalie, but he just can't stay healthy. So DeSmith gets them a win. They blew the lead, and really, you thought they were going to lose the game. Like, watching Crosby and Malkin celebrating that winning goal, oh. it reminded me of, like, 2007, 2008 Crosby and Malkin. Like, that was like a win, that, the way they would celebrate before they ever won a Stanley Cup. Did you see Malkin's celebration after that goal going skating down along the boards? Like, how many yeah. pumpernickels did he give that thing? That's like he just beat the Detroit Red Wings to win the Stanley Cup. You cannot lie... <laughs> that emotion that is real that is like if anybody still thinks that those guys don't care or making the playoffs or winning isn't meaningful to these guys watch the celebration after that goal it just reminds you that here are these guys they've been in the league 20 years yeah and it's still meaningful for them to win games like that you know the interesting thing for me in washington is kuznetsov like it's obvious now the Capitals are, are reshaping their team. Yeah. And I'll give credit to the, the blog uh, Russian Machine Never Breaks because they found the article out of Russia that says that Kuznetsov had asked for a trade a couple of years ago. And suddenly a lot of things start to make more sense. You know, for the last couple of years, you know, we've kind of heard Kuznetsov's name out there. We've talked before about how the relationship between him and the team has been strained. You know, I, I think they've been disappointed with him. Ovechkin was the Conn Smythe winner in 2018, but, you know, Kuznetsov was was a major reason they won the Stanley Cup. Like, he gave them oh. he gave them an, an element in, the, in those years' playoffs that they always dreamed of when they drafted him, that they would have a killer one-two punch, Backstrom Kuznetsov, and people would not be able to handle it. And that's exactly what happened uh, that playoff. He got a big contract right after. He deserved every penny at the time. And if he had continued to play uh, the way that he played, none of this would be an issue. But he really hasn't been the same player since. I think that they have felt he has not had the same attitude. You know, Kuznetsov, is, he's always been a really honest, uh, free thinker. I enjoy talking to him. He's very blunt. But I think they feel that uh, he's not the same committed player, and he feels, obviously, he's not been supported by the organization. Now, it's like dating Jeff. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. But 
I think this brings to light what a lot of us have suspected. And I think that for a couple of years now, the Capitals and Kuznetsov have been headed towards potentially a divorce. It's just that, like I said, if he was playing the way he was playing in 2018, they're not looking to trade him. And also somebody's happy to take him. He just hasn't been at that level, which makes it harder on the team and harder to make a deal in a tight cap world. But it, mm-hmm. it says to me this is coming at some point. Can't say exactly when, but it's coming. Elliot also want to mention and congratulate the New Jersey Devils. Um, they hit 100 points. They beat the Ottawa Senators 5-3. to three. Jack Hughes scores goal number 40, and they clinch a playoff spots. Congratulations to the New Jersey Devils. Uh, they joined the Boston Bruins and Carolina Hurricanes as teams that have clinched Elliot's. Like, I like to see new blood, right? I, I think it's good for the league if you get some new teams that make the playoffs uh, every year. I, I think it's good for a market. It's good for a franchise. It's good for the NHL to watch uh, somebody new. You and I have talked about how, you know, Jack Hughes is is on my heart list. I, I think he's a guy who deserves some heart trophy votes. I think it's really good for Jack Hughes to be seen in the playoffs. Like, all the devils, really. He's sure too. Um, you know, he's a guy who doesn't get as much attention as he deserves. Brat, we're going to be exposed to a lot of players in the playoffs this year for the Devils that I think deserve uh, a lot of exposure. And, and Hughes, I, I think, is is absolutely one of them. They really haven't had too many bad stretches, Jeff. Mm-hmm. I mean, aside from the first two games where, you know, the fans wanted blood, it was like gladiator, thumbs up, thumbs down in, in New Jersey at the start of the season. <laughs> and, and it was thumbs down from the fans and thumbs up from the organization. They haven't had too many bad stretches. They've been a really consistent, fun-to-watch team. And I think that whoever they get in the first round, whether they get the Rangers or, or, or they get someone else, one of the te- they win the division and get one of the teams at the bottom, the Devils are going to be uh, a problem for people because I, I think they're fast. They're tremendous to watch. They're really skilled. I think if there's one thing that uh, the people have felt about the Devils is that they wonder if they can be pushed around a bit in a grindy series. Now, Meyer, I think, will address some of that because that's not a guy who can be pushed around. And it's another reason I thought he was a perfect fit for them. Yep. I think that's what people feel. You've really got to lean on them to beat them. And we'll see how that goes. But I'm I'm happy for them, and I, I want to see it. It's a young team, and you know what this is, Elliot? This is a step. This is now they know, like all these young players on the New Jersey Devils know what a full NHL season feels like and what it feels like to accomplish something in the regular season. And when they hit the playoffs, then there's the experience of knowing what an NHL postseason brings along with it. I look at this as, quote-unquote, a step. For the New Jersey Devils as they, you know, start to, to climb up the ladder uh, around the NHL. Do we call it a Seattle win or a Nashville loss? The Kraken seven, the Predators two, pair of goals by Tolvanen. I know that's things. I get it. Adam Larson scores again. Um, by the way, Adam Larson, who, you know, crushed the Dallas Stars when when we were there in overtime. Uh, Jared McCann with his checks notes. 35th 35. goal of the season. It's ridiculous. Well, first of all, that shot is so elite. Yeah. And, and he can fire it from distance too. Do you look at that game and say, 
that's a Kraken win or do you look at it and you say that's a Predators loss? Which side is more profound here? No, I, I think it's a Kraken win. And, you know, come on, like, don't waste everyone's time. We all know why you brought this up. Uh, whatever do you mean? <laughs> like, I'm sitting here <laughs> listening to you list all these goals. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Bro, I'm sorry. Oliver Bjorkstrand's got 17 goals. It's a nice Very little good, pickup Jeff. from Columbus there. Whenever Sprong scores, I got people tweeting at me now. I love it. It's one of my favorite things on the internet right now. around Smith. Donato cuts in front. Backhand on goal. And they score! What a move by Ryan Donato as he cuts in front. And Sprong will finish the play and tap it home. He now has goals in three straight. And the Seattle Kraken have a 1-0 lead. 16-46. <laughs> hey, Elliot, Daniel Sprong scored. You've known me since 94, 95, Elliot, so you know how petty I am. So this should, this should be no yeah, surprise. You're petty, and there's, there's nothing subtle about what you're doing either. Like, people think this is subtle. It ain't that subtle. I love when I see people tweeting you about Sprong. It's so good. And, and what did Seattle set a record of this week? Like the biggest second biggest year jump, improvement. Yeah. Biggest second year improvement. I give I, I give them a lot of credit. Like the, you know, what is what does Bill Parcells say? One of my favorite coaches. You are what your record says you are. Last year, their record said they weren't good enough. Yep. They looked at okay, what are our problems last year? And they went out and they addressed them. Sprong, Bjorkstrand. They needed to be faster. Yeah. They needed to be uh, Tolvanen. They needed to be able to score more, and they did it. Nashville, I'm amazed they're in it. I think everybody thought the white flag was going up. The moment that game really changed was it was still a game, and, and Soros, who's their rock and their backbone, has that giveaway to Tolvanen to make it 3-1. to one. And I know there's some people, I got some tweets from fans in Boston who didn't like uh, that I said that Hellebuck is my clear Vesna winner this year. They think it should be all marked, which is fine. I expect the Bruins fans to stand up for their goalie. But I think there are some goalies in the league more than others who, when when they're merely human, it takes their team down. And that's not a criticism of Saros, not at all. What it is is it just shows you how critical he is to them. Mm -hmm. And I just thought when that happened and Nashville was down two, they sagged. And like I said, it's not Saros's fault. It's just for five seconds, whatever. He looked human. And when Saros looks human, Nashville right now, he's got to be superhuman mm. for them to make the playoffs. And you know what? They split with Seattle, which I think on a lot of days would be really good. But right now, they just don't have a lot yeah, of runway. Yeah, they, gotta, yeah, they, gotta they don't run. have a lot of runway. The, the the other the other person that I that I always like to point out when it comes to Seattle Kraken is Vince Dunn is just having a tremendous year. He is. Now, he's an RFA this offseason. Uh, I would imagine he's going to get a bump up from the $4 million. That was That was such a great expansion pick for the Seattle Kraken that's paying off. He leads the team in scoring for each. Yeah. Like, I know we talk about Jared McCann and the 35 goals. He's got 59 points. Vince Dunn has 60. Yeah. And that pair of Vince Dunn and Adam Larson has been fantastic. And... You know, when you look at a record like the one that you just mentioned, you know, the highest bump uh, for an expansion team from first year to second, we don't vote for the Jack Adams, but how much appreciation do you think Dave Hackstall? I know there's a lot of good coaches out there this year you can make strong cases for. How much attention do you think Dave Hackstall gets? I think he gets a lot. It's a huge leap. So, uh, Jeff, before we do the emails, yes, uh, we're taping this podcast on March 
26th. Okay. When you think of March 26th, is there anything specific that comes to your mind? Oh, it's your birthday. No, it's not. My oh. birthday's in September. Oh, okay. First um, of all, I got to say, <laughs> if it was my birthday, I would not bring that up. <laughs> um, March. I'm 20- not Kevin Bieksa. I don't need attention. March 26th. Oh, I hate it when my wife does things like this. Um, okay. What is it? I'm going to eliminate your pain. I could leave you hanging here for weeks, and I would probably <laughs> love it as a segment. March 26th, 1997, Fight Night at the Joe. Oh, wow. Is that March 26th? Yes. Whew. Yeah, that was... I don't want to say that was the... We talk so much about ends of eras and things that indicate that this is the end of this era of hockey, but we have had really great rivalries and heated rivalries between teams, but... To be honest with you, Elliot, I've always looked at those two teams and that event and said that might be the end of the era of a certain kind of hatred between organizations. Do you feel the same way? Because we've seen rivalries and rivalries are different than hatred. We've seen that between the Oilers and the Flames in the 80s. We've seen that between the Rangers and the Islanders. We certainly saw that between the Nordiques and the Montreal Canadiens once upon a time. We saw that with the Flyers and the Rangers in the early 70s. We've seen that between the Detroit Red Wings and the Montreal Canadiens going back to the 50s. Uh, We've seen that with the Boston Bruins and a number of teams along the way. I've always looked at that, Elliot, and said, that might be the last time we saw real deep rooted baked in the bone hatred between two teams agree or disagree i agree with that i think rivalries are different now they are i think free agency has changed it again i have nothing against free agency i I do think you should be able to move around and pick your job as much as you can and i think the salaries have changed it and again i I have no problem with people securing the bag and, and getting paid i just think things are really different now and you know that was real hate that was wow that i mean i I was watching the videos this morning and the one thing i always remember there's there's a spot in the video where lemieux's blood is on the ice and the linesman is like scraping it shaving it with his skate yes like just trying to get the blood off the ice and i'm trying to imagine like in the social media era I'm trying to imagine like no. that game on TV now. No. Like like a whole bunch of people cuz back then, you know, it was regional telecasts, a lot of these games weren't televised. Imagine now everybody's got SportsNet now or ESPN Plus in the states or it's a nationally televised game and just what it would be like watching that. And uh, I remember when Shanahan went into the hall he came in and Ron McLean asked him about Mark 2697. And they talked about that as the night that the Red Wing dynasty began. Like they won their first cup months later, but that was the night it began when they stood up against Colorado and, and they fought. And then again, it would happen later. I'm watching the highlights now and this kind of hate you're right, Jeff, it doesn't exist anymore. It was very real. And you know the other thing too is I remember when I when I was younger I you know I was a really small kid and I just remember there was one guy I was I was really young and uh, you know he was a bit of a bully 
I didn't like it. And finally someone said to me, I was probably about, I would kind of say I was probably about eight years old at the time. Mm -hmm. And someone said to me, Elliot, it's going to keep happening unless you do something about it. I said, okay. And, uh, I fought, I didn't do great, Jeff. I have to say that I was, like I said, I was a small kid. I didn't do great, but I got a couple of shots in and one or two that the other guy felt and it never happened again. And, uh, I just think that in life sometimes, I think you have to stand up for yourself and say, you know, this isn't going to be as easy as you think it is. Like, like, like I got to tell you, like at one point in time, there was a time when I, and I don't want to say who it was because we laugh about it now, but there was somebody, somebody who was really angry about something I said, and I didn't think it was that bad, but he was really angry about it. And he said, I'll fight you. And uh, I said, look, like if you want to fight me, I'll fight you. I'll lose, but I'll try to make it as hard on you as possible. And he looked at me and he said, you're nuts. And he walked away. And then later he actually called me and he kind of apologized. He said, look, you don't have anything to apologize for. I really don't care. And he said, like, I just can't believe I challenged you to a fight in the middle of our dressing room. And I said, look, you know, that was never going to happen. I would have, I would have done it somewhere privately. I would have rented out a gym somewhere or something like that. A barn. I, a barn. Yeah. I would have asked Berkey for his barn. But, uh, you know, I, I really do believe that in life. I think sometimes you, you have to stand up for yourself and, and it can change the trajectory of the way things go for you. And I always remember that night. I think about that, uh, as a matter of fact, I just dialed up the highlights right now, oh, geez. and um, I do look at this as the as the night that started the Red Wings dynasty. Like, if they don't have this, yeah. do they win the Stanley Cup? I don't think so, but I've always thought that way. the th- The thing that I w- one of the things that I'm always impressed by, or that I always wonder about too, is the thing that was impressive about that rivalry and that hatred and those eruptions that we saw, the one thing that always stood out in my mind is how much complete disregard everybody had for their own safety. Yeah. Like I look at scrums now and I see, okay, this guy's trying to protect himself here. And we've seen this in fights before where everyone sort of grabs the right person. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I know I'm going to be safe if I'm holding on to this guy. The thing about Detroit, Colorado in that era was those players didn't care if they got hurt. Like, that's the one thing that I always took away from it. Like, they just said, we don't care if we're going to get hurt in this. We are going into this fight. And it didn't matter who it was. It didn't matter how we fought, whether it was with fists or, you know, ask Claude the Mew how his head felt after a knee. They didn't care. They had complete disregard for their own safety. This was all about Red Wings versus Avalanche. And I'd love to do this one day. Talk to people that were involved, and as macabre as this might sound, Elliot, uh-huh. I wonder who still has scars from that that they look at and they say, "Yeah, that's from that's from March twenty sixth." That daily reminder of it, whether it's on their face, whether it's on their hands, whether it's something. I mean, certainly psychological, but I always wonder who carries those scars with them their whole life. These are the things I think about Elliot Friedman. There's been a lot of good work done on it. You know, there's been TV features, books, books. Yep. A lot of good reading and viewing on it. It was incredible. To me, that was a night maybe not a lot of people will remember. That two years, two nights changed the direction of the NHL. Number one, Patrick Waugh 
saying I'm never playing for the Canadians again. Yep. This is my last game here in Montreal. Yep. And that fight. Those two nights changed the National Hockey League. What did both those events have in common? Patrick Waugh. The presence of the Detroit Red Wings. Yes. That's right. The, the Red Wings were the team that, that lit them up. Pounding the Habs. <laughs> Oh, great memories. Uh, hit a quick break. We'll come back with... Uh, thanks for that, Elliot. Uh, your phone calls and your emails. Thanks. All right. A smoky break for our Thoughtline partner, Montana's Barbecue and Bar. With meats prepared and smoked in-house, it's no wonder why they're Canada's home for barbecue. Check them out, and as Elliot always says... Try the ribs. Yes, their ribs are smoked in-house every day until they fall off the bone. And don't forget, Montana's has all-you-can-eat ribs every Wednesday. Head on down to Montana's Barbecue and Bar and take the all-you-can-eat rib challenge every Wednesday. Smoking good barbecue only at Montana's. Some conditions apply. Visit montanas.ca for details. You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously. It doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. Okay, Elliot, finish up as we usually do with our Monday podcast with phone calls and emails. Uh, the address by email is 32thoughts at sportsnet.ca. The phone number, uh, 1-833-311-3232. Ubin from Maryland, Elliot, submits this one. I had an idea for a new rule. How about a rule that lets a team defer any penalty taken with under two minutes left in the period to the very beginning of the next period? Clean sheet, no disruption within the power play and potentially getting two full minutes of offensive zone. Your thoughts on that one? I don't know if I would ever expect that to happen. It's a creative idea, but it's not something that I would see happening. Do you? No, you know what? There, there is one thing in there. Uh, first of all, no, Ubin, uh, I like the creativity. Uh, yeah, I like the creativity too. I want to pull one thing out of this one though. You know what has always kind of bugged me? What's that? Teams on the power play with like say, I don't know, 30 seconds remaining in the in the in the period, okay? You get a you get a you get a 2 minute power play. The the 30 seconds expires. You end the period in the offensive zone, but to kick off the power play the next period, you start at center ice. You've mentioned this before. Would you be in favor of starting that power play in the offensive zone instead of pulling it back to center ice? Why do they have to earn the zone again? Yeah, I have to say that's not the worst idea you've ever had. I mean, it's a big change in the history of the sport. It's a huge but, change, I get it. But I don't have a big problem with it. I mean, the other 
The other problem with the question is, you know, what happens if, if you get the penalty with 30 seconds left? You say, we'll defer to start the third and then 15 seconds later, or you commit a penalty. <laughs> then you're on the penalty kill or you score and Then it's just bonus time, I suppose. Again, I like the uniqueness of the idea. I just don't see it as being feasible. Okay, Steve in Indiana. Dallas Stars fan here. Love you guys. Took a trip out here and can't wait to hear the interviews. They're coming. Nice to get the extra effort from Canadian media and sorry that the drive up from Austin is pretty dull, Jeff and Amal. <laughs> is it Amal? You were sleeping, Jeff. How would you know? Oh, I snoozed. I snoozed. <laughs> Almost like looking out the window. He's stopping at In-N-Out Burger. Like, There's our first stop. Dude, food's getting did... all over his beard. Like, you know, you can only imagine how disgusting he looked. We yeah, did the beeline to In-N-Out like right away. Zump. We're not going anywhere until we get to In-N-Out, Merrick. I can't blame him for that one, I have to say. <laughs> uh, Steve continues. Anyway, a couple of episodes ago, you talked about sticks and who pays for them, and it got me wondering. I recently bought a pair of game-worn Jamie Ben gloves and was curious how many of those does a player use per season? Aha! I texted uh, Daryl Hughes. Okay, so Daryl is the director of sports marketing for Bauer. And here's what he said. Hmm. Some are definitely higher than others for gloves, but when we build our budget, we go with eight to 10 pairs average, two left at the practice rink, six to eight for regular season with retro uniforms, etc. that will add pairs. There are, this is fascinating to me, there are heavy glove users. You ready for this, Elliot? Mm -hmm. 60 to 80 pairs per year. Wow. I asked who the heaviest users were. He said, Patrick Kane loves fresh gloves. Nikita Kucherov and Jack Eichel order a lot as well. 60 to 80 per season for the high-end users. That's unbelievable. <laughs> I, I was When I was in Vancouver on Tuesday, Vegas was there. Yeah. And I saw Marcia So Extra truck for Eichel. I saw Marcia So and he was lacing up a new pair of skates. And I go, how many like how many pairs of skates do you go through a season? He goes, I do a new one every three to four games. I was like, what? what? He goes, oh yeah, three to four games. And I can't remember if he said Eichel was the same way, but he said he's a new pair every three to four games. I said, you just take them right out of the box and you, and you wear them? And he goes, yeah. I was like, holy smokes. So I remember asking someone not too long ago about skates and how many pairs um, each player uses. And this person said to me, 15 pairs easy. And those are like 1000 to 1200 bucks a pop. I think Austin Matthews might be one as well. He mixes his skates up a ton. You mentioned Marcia so as well. I mean, it seems like every time you see Austin Matthews, he has a different pair of skates on. So I would imagine some guys are even more than that. It's wild. Yeah. Like I, I would love to one day just dedicate a podcast just to equipment and who uses what and how much of what and, you know, what the, 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 the highest expense, you know, budget line is, thick skates, gloves, all of it is for, for NHL teams. That's somewhere in our future, Elliot. I'm warning you now that podcast is coming up. But I think that's interesting. I think fans would really like that about just yeah. who, like I like Van Riemsdyk, I've heard. Like one of the stories I heard about Van Riemsdyk was, obviously things got screwed up on deadline day, but someone told me after it was over, that there had been contact between the equipment guys in Philly and the equipment guys in Detroit, mm. like just saying, hey, JVR, he's coming there. You need to know this about him because apparently he's a guy who's very particular. And so, you know, 
that's I think that's one of the reasons the story kind of got out there that he was potentially going to try it because of that the conversations like that one. Uh, let's get to a voicemail. Mark in Massachusetts. Hi, Mr. Friedman and Mr. Merrick. This is Mark from Massachusetts. Uh, David Pasternak recently joked on Behind the Bee that he would give Patrice Bergeron and David Krejci a million dollars if they sign next season from his contract. <laughs> so my question to you is this. Is it possible for a player to give up part of their own salary to acquire a player if their team is at capacity? Uh, for example, if Brad Marchand wanted to go to the Pittsburgh Penguins for the last year of his contract, would uh, Sidney Crosby be willing to give up league minimum to get him on the team, you know? All right, take care. Mark, Massachusetts, thanks so much for the phone call. It's a great question. I, again, I like the creativity. The answer is no. Now, you know, once once you sign a contract, you cannot uh, renegotiate it. The only way out is is if it gets bought out. Um, so, if like say Crosby said, "I'll give up league minimum off my contract to you to sign someone else," I mean, technically, Crosby could say, "Don't worry, Penguins. Uh, it won't be official, but I'll pay somebody's contract if they want to come here." Uh, but no, you, you can't, you can't do that. You can't say, take 800 off mine to, to do, to do someone else. That's a hundred, uh, that's, listen, that's a hundred percent true. The one thing that I will throw in, there have been situations where, and I think of Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, Elliot, where there was a number that Connor McDavid was going to do his contract at and then decided to take less to leave money for the Edmonton Oilers so they could re-sign Leon Dreisaitl. But again, that was before the contract was official. To Elliot's point... I think his contract was supposed to initially come in around 13.25 or 13.3 or something like that. Yes, and he decided to leave money so the uh, the Oilers could help build around him. Namely, with Leon Dreisaitl, who scored another one of those goals on Saturday, by the way. I love when Dreisaitl sets up backwards like that in front of the net and spins and shoots. I think it's one of the, it's one of my favorite things in hockey. That's fantastic. You know, one <laughs> thing, so one thing I want to say is that there was a rumor going around a couple of years ago when the Blackhawks were really struggling that Tays had asked to restructure his contract so that they could open up cap room for the Blackhawks. And I did the Bruce Oak Foundation charity event one year with Scott and it was, Taze was one of the guests and I was interviewing him. So I, I said to him, can I ask you something? I did this behind the scenes. He goes, sure. And I go, look, I heard a rumor that you would ask to renegotiate your contract so you could open up cap room for the team to sign new players. And he like laughed at me. He goes, who told you that <laughs> bit of nonsense? Uh, that bit of nonsense. I like that. Scott and Hamilton. With the offseason approaching for half the league, I was curious what control teams have over how their stars train in the offseason. Are certain activities strictly forbidden, or is it more of a we're not going to ask situation provided the players arrive at camp in one piece? There are things that are in the contracts you're not allowed to do. Yes. You know, I remember in baseball a few years ago, Paul Quantrill injured himself snowmobiling and he tried to keep it quiet and it was, it was a thing. There are things you're not allowed to do. I, I think the one thing is teams are much more on the ball now about sending people to check up on players 
all the time. Like they'll give a detailed plan. There are situations like when I was in uh, Vancouver last week, Talk had talked about how he'd like Kravsoft to stay in Vancouver all summer and train with him and, or just be under the eyes of the Canucks. And technically they can't force him to do that. But I think that uh, for one thing, I think the Tockett's goals here are pure. I don't think he's trying to do anything untoward. I think he really thinks it could help Kravtsov, and Tockett likes that kind of thing. He's very passionate about it. Mm-hmm. But technically, the Canucks can't force him to do it, but I do think some players, uh, depending on where they are in their careers, they do feel pressure. They know that a team will look at it better if they're around uh, a bit more often. I also know at times, like when Toronto... And this is kind of typical funny stuff. I kind of laugh at it. But in Toronto, there were times where the Leafs would let other players work out at their facilities in the summer because they would want other players to see how good it looked. And other teams would just freak out. Like, why are you there? The Leafs are tampering. And I'm like, come on. Like, I said this to a GM once. I said, come on. Like, the guy lives near the practice facility. Why can't he go work out there? He goes, they're trying to steal him from us. And I'm like, oh my God. I mean, who knows? Maybe it's true, but um, that kind of stuff does come up, Jeff. Speaking of hiding injuries or the the cause of injuries, and I am not going to say the player's name, although everybody knows this person. There was one player, I know I'm sending everyone on a wild goose chase here, whose career actually ended because of a back injury incurred in a hotel hallway where members of the team perhaps were, how shall we say, Elliot, over-refreshed, over-poured, perhaps, and uh, goofing around in the hallway, and a skateboard appeared, and this gentleman got on the skateboard, promptly fell off the skateboard, and messed up his back, uh, and that was the end of the career, and that one was treated as if it was a hockey injury. Wow. Well, you know, remember remember the time you talked about the player whose career was hurt by playing video games and everyone started guessing? I cannot wait for yes. the guessing game to begin on this one. <laughs> I know. The other one the other one I remember like that was uh, a Tiger Williams biography is somewhere in my library here, mm-hmm. but he talks about a time where he was always on the ice early and one day Bill Flett came on the ice early. Cowboy. Yes, and he said that Bill Flett never did that. He never came on the ice early. So he came on one day and he was doing some stuff and he started fooling around with uh, Williams and they were like play fighting and Flett went down with his back. Oh, my back, I hurt my back. And Williams was like, oh my God, I I hurt this guy. And he felt terrible about it because it turned out to be a pretty legitimate injury. And he said, not long after, some players told him, look, like, don't be upset about that. He hurt his back doing something off the ice. Like, I don't remember what it was, like snowmobiling or something he wasn't supposed to do. Yeah. And so he came out to practice the next day to kind of frame Williams for it, <laughs> which I think is an ingenious plan. But, oh, wow. you know, Tiger Williams did not like that. He was really angry about that. And I would not want Tiger Williams mad at me. No. He's the, the wrong person to have angry. Kind of a bad thing to do, I have to say. Not good. Uh, let's finish up with this one. Alex in Ottawa. There are some players like Mario Lemieux and Ken Dryden who are Hall of Famers, but still didn't play as much or as long as they could have due to injury. Who are some of the players that you think could have possibly been in the Hall of Fame level, but their careers were cut short for whatever reason? 
Well, well, I, I think one thing that's actually turned out to be really good is some people have really been rewarded despite that. Eric Lindros, uh, Pavel Bure, Cam Neely, you know, Maryland, he was going in anyway, but um, there have been some players who you, you look at them and you say, maybe in the past they might not have gotten in because they just simply didn't play long enough, but now there's an understanding of how good they were. And I, I like to see that. I, I think that mm-hmm. I think that deserves to be uh, recognized. You know, one player that I think of a lot, and simply because he was a player from my youth, Jeff, was the, the Maple Leafs had a number one pick one year, and it was um, Gary Dylan. Oh, and uh, if they had the medicine like they have now and surgery, and I say that about Gord Kluzak too, I think that's similar. Same, same era, same era. I'm with you on Gary Nyland. Uh, Gary Nyland was a big, strong killer of a defender, and he was just never healthy. Like, he was never healthy. My answer to this question, it's interesting. There was just a Reddit thread about this recently on Reddit Hockey, and I want to get to the name that someone brought up, which is a great name. But my answer to this question has always been two people specifically. One, Pelly Lindbergh, I thought was trending towards what could have been a Hall of Fame-type career. Absolutely. That's a that's a great, great call. The other one that I always answer this question uh, with is Mickey Redmond yeah. of the Detroit Red Wings, whose career was cut short due to back injuries. But if you look at how good and how productive Mickey Redmond was with the 50-goal seasons with that Detroit Red Wings squad, and he didn't play anywhere close to as long as he should have played, those are the two I always answer, Mickey Redmond and Pelly Lindbergh. Someone on Reddit Hockey mentioned... Todd Bergen. Wow. Now, Todd Bergen, for those that don't know, I mean, the story has always been his career was cut short because he got Keenaned. Now, he was a draft pick of the Philadelphia Flyers and was like a big scorer in the uh, in the Western Hockey League, uh, drafted in, in 1982, second or third round. He was like, you know, goal and a half a game in junior hockey was a star at the American Hockey League, played in the NHL. He only played 14 games with the Philadelphia Flyers in the uh, in the NHL, but he scored 11 goals, 16 points, and had 13 points in 17 games in the playoffs. And I can't remember what the exact injury was, but it was one of those scenarios, as the story goes, that Mike Keenan didn't believe that he was really injured and kept practicing him. I'm not sure if he kept playing him, but he kept practicing him, and the injury actually cost him his career. He was like the elite Western Hockey League scorer. Everywhere he went, Todd Bergen shot the lights out and was poised to be a star with the Philadelphia Flyers. This is their 84-85 season. And then really went to war with Keenan. You know Elliot from that background. Things don't go well for you when you go to war with with Mike Keenan. No. Kept playing on an injury that cost him his career. Traded to the Minnesota North Stars. Had to retire because of the injury. Got into the golf industry, I want to say as well, in British Columbia. And that was the last we had heard of Todd Bergen. Until I read this Reddit thread and got this question on our uh, on our email from Alex in Ottawa, Todd Bergen. Now, I don't know if he's going to end up a Hall of Famer. All I'm saying is Todd Bergen was looking like this guy was poised to be a star, and his career was ended by an injury that was not only mistreated, it wasn't treated at all. As a matter of fact, he kept playing. Wow, that's some great stuff. I remember that name. That's quite a pull. When you woke up this morning, did you think you were going to hear the name Todd Bergen, Elliot? 
I have to tell you, this podcast went in a lot of directions. <laughs> I wasn't expecting it to go. Uh, okay, so let's uh, let's end it up then. Um, thanks so much for listening. Uh, have a really enjoyable week. It's another big one on the horizon around the NHL. And taking us out is a rapper and record producer from Queens, New York. Kwame released his debut album in 1989 and then dropped three more records before his 21st birthday. He would then pivot to a career as a music producer working with LL Cool J, Missy Elliott, and Eminem. From his debut album, The Boy Genius, here's Kwame with Push the Panic Button on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. I like to flow, that's what I do with the tempo, the end to the intro, the quam begins so smooth. So push the panic button, act like a frantic nothing, a nut house, put in dance step together, move and help skelter, run and find shelter. Mm, I felt a sudden much when my beat began, and God forbid, if I had no pen, because without a pen, I'd be without a scent, station first to turn it out again. So go find cover, hurry, visions blurry, come fury, blind about the worry of a phantom, about to strike, but you don't know when, it could be any time, the hell was slow in your pace, and jet, you know that we hunting, push the panic button. You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously, it doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences... People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host.